Welcome to Loading Dock Talks, where all the juiciest conversations happen. I'm Chef Prithi Mystery. Every episode, I talk to my favorite food folks about their lives, food, and social justice, and we do a little shit talking too. I think one thing that I learned over the years in running Juhu is that there's really like three different groups of people that you're serving as a small business owner. You're serving your customers, you're serving your staff, and you're serving your community. And so to me, the you know, the first year we opened was when Black Lives Matter started. Through the protests that started that summer, it was clear if it wasn't already when we opened, how much community was also a part of that. And and that means, and I think this is one thing that's hard for a lot of business owners to understand, even the people who can't afford to eat at your restaurant are still part of your community. And you can't just say, oh, well, they can't afford to eat in my restaurant and not everybody can. And so, you know, too bad for them and move on. It's like, well, what are you doing for those folks? Because those folks are still, they, they might one day be able to afford your restaurant. They might be the backbone of the reason why this other person can work at your restaurant because they do childcare for that person or their kid is one day going to be in high school and want a job or, you know, what have you. So our anniversary was in March. So we also had a holy party, which I thought also was an awesome thing because so many people know about the Hindu holiday, holy, which is where everyone wears white and throws all the colors and it's like the festival of love. Um, there's been a lot of appropriation around that because it is such a fun sort of like activity, if you think of as a group of people. So I think that um, people who are, uh, you know, Hindu or not, Indian or not, that you know, I've read about this, heard about it, seen it on online or on TV. And, and we're like, wow, that's so fun. That looks so cool. Um, to just create an opportunity for people to be a part of that. And also in a way that isn't sort of oddly appropriative, but it's coming from this Indian restaurant that is relatively engaged in the community around it. And therefore people could come and celebrate. So for me, the anniversary party, having the food be free and, you know, having the party kind of spill out beyond just the four walls of the restaurant, to me, it almost seemed like, well, if you're going to have the party spill out beyond the four walls, then everyone should be included. Because when you think about your birthday or an anniversary, like you don't think about like charging people for that, right? Like I think about even like we celebrated my dad's birthday in the restaurant the first year we opened and at the end of his dinner, we had a cake. And so after everybody in my family got cake, uh, Ann and I cut pieces of the cake and we went around to every table in the restaurant and offered them some cake for my dad's birthday because it's just seemed like the thing to do. Um, this is our house. Why would you only give cake to some people? So in the same way, to me, it's like you're part of this community and celebrating that means like an offering to everyone that supports your business and the people in and around your business. I think that was really the mindset that we had. And and I think that's also like the reason that we wanted to give back to a lot of different organizations. Like when we started our second restaurant, Navi Kitchen, um, it was like intrinsic to the entire concept. Like we like 
you know, solidarity soup that happened at Juhu Beach Club where we gave a dollar to a different organization, depending on what, you know, was the latest catastrophe in our world, um, came out of Black Lives Matter. It was originally Black Dell for Black Lives Matter. Um, and then when we opened Navi Kitchen, we just from the very beginning, we're like, OK, we're going to have this whole section of the menu where each item goes to a different organization. So we had three different organizations when we first opened. One was Bay Area Black Lives Matter. Another one was Plantic Justice, which serves uh, formerly incarcerated folks, teaching them farming skills. And uh, the last one was Destiny Arts Center, which uh, teaches self-defense and dance to uh, young people on a sliding scale. To someone who says, well, I'm a small business, like, what can I do to help people that can't afford my restaurant? Like, how do I help that part of our community? Like, I got to focus on this. It's like, well, to me, I feel directly like helping an organization like Destiny Arts in whatever way that is, whether that's with money or, you know, food in terms of in-kind donations, what have you, what it is, is giving to your community in a way that keeps the whole community healthy. You're helping the young people that are the future of that community stay, you know, healthy, stay grounded, uh, have the type of life experiences that other kids, um, that they that they wouldn't be able to afford if it wasn't for something like Destiny Arts. Um, and that really like helps kids mature and grow. In this episode, we have the last guest of our first season, Davida Davidson. Davida Davidson is a community activist in the food industry and the executive director of Food Lab Detroit. Food Lab was born out of a crisis. And that was the economic devastation that happened in Detroit, where all these massive businesses left. And... People had, you know, the unemployment was through the roof, etc. And, you know, we all know like a year and a half ago, that's basically what happened to the entire country all at once. And so I, you know, she's already a very wise human. And the fact that she had been through that and that's what her organization, Food Lab, was built out of this crisis that happened. And therefore, what she sort of spearheaded was a network of mutual aid amongst community in Detroit, um, a community that, you know, was, they say it was a food desert that grocery stores, restaurants, everything um, had left. And it was really just the local folks saying, what are we going to do to help each other? And I believe that some of the cooking started in, you know, church, basement kitchens, etc. So to me, I thought last, you know, March, April, May, like I got to talk to Davida because, you know, we're all trying to figure out what we're going to do and how we're going to get out of this together. I would say almost every single person on this whole first season of Loading Doc Talks in some way has some wisdom and courage, but also something to share about how they grew, how they, you know, locked arms in solidarity with many others for us to get out of this as a community through mutual aid, through conversations, through collective action, and not just everyone for themselves.
So I want to know, tell me about five-year-old Davida. Where are you? What are the smells, the sounds? Who's in your life? What are you eating? What's on the radio? And I'm going to start you um, off pretty with a story about five-year-old Davida. I had to be about five or six years old. Um, and I love this question about childhood because it gives me the opportunity to tell you um, mm -hmm. the story. And so, and also to date myself, I was born in, in 1969. And so around five or six years old was the very first time that Davida got on a plane by herself. Now, the reason why it's important for me to tell you that I was born in 1969, because a lot has changed from mm -hmm. the airports um, and from the 1970s, from the airports of today. Yeah. In 1970, five or six-year-old Davida was headed off to the airport for the very first time. And I was dressed to the nine in red, white, and blue, getting ready to go get on a plane by myself for the first time, headed to New York to go visit my father's sisters. My father is the eldest um, of 11. My mom hands me over to the stewardess. Um, I'm sitting in the front row. The pilot comes out and greets um, five-year-old Davida. He puts a little Delta pin um, on my lapel and off I go to New York City. The reason why I tell you this story is mm -hmm. because the stewardess said to the man who was sitting next to me, is it possible that we could switch seats? I was sitting on the aisle. He was sitting on the window. And the gentleman looked at the stewardess and he looked at me and he said, absolutely. <laughs> I, changed, I changed seats. And the stewardess said to me, she says, Davida, when we get ready to land in New York City, I want you to look out of the window. And it was the very first time at five or six years old when I saw the New York skyline for the first wow. time in my life. And I looked up at the stewardess as she told me to look out the window as we were flying over the skyline. And I said to the stewardess, one day I'm going to live in New York City. And she turned around and said to me, every little girl should. And, oh. and there are very few things that I know in life. I'm sort of jealous of, of people pretty who knew mm -hmm. all of their lives that they were going to be chefs. They knew all of their lives that they were going to be gymnasts. They knew all of their lives that they wanted to be artists. I didn't know anything. But at five years old, I knew that one day I was going to live in New York City. And I did mm. for about um, almost 20 years. And even though I was born and raised in Detroit... And the summer times there were really, really special, particularly because I have parents who were part of the Great Migration, where mm -hmm. about five or six million African-Americans left the rural South, fleeing the violence of Jim Crow, and came north looking for better opportunities and brought with them that agricultural skills. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I was raised with a garden um, in my backyard where my mother grew fresh fruits and vegetables to harvest fresh fruits and vegetables. Like it was a part of my, my childhood, the yeah. smell of strawberries or, mm -hmm. or cucumbers or my daddy um, roasting on um, the barbecue pit during the summer, making homemade ice creams, the cloud of smoke, the pillow of smoke that would fill our communities, particularly during the holidays. It wasn't until I moved to New York City that I really began to expand my palate and began to taste cuisines outside of the African-American traditional cuisine of soul food. So I think those two things really influenced um, yeah. uh, my love of food. But I think it was growing up in Detroit in a pro-union household in the epicenter of the automobile industry, hence the UAW, mm -hmm. that really um, shaped 
uh, my philosophy at the intersection of food and labor, and more mm. importantly, community. Tell me a little bit about 10-year-old uh, DeVita. What's going on there? What are you sort of engaging with at school, with your friends, with your family? I think the fast forward um, until I'm, I'm, I'm 10 years old, this is preteen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think at this time, I'm starting to get, um, even at 10 years old, I would say I'm starting to get more confident um, in my voice. Mm. And that I have something to say and that I have people in my life that surround me who care about what I have to say and who will listen. Mm. And how I think I got that voice pretty and it became mm-hmm. stronger and stronger throughout the years is through church. Um, I was born not only in a pro-union household, but mm-hmm. I was also born and raised in the Baptist church. Yeah, And under the, um, just the prophetic power of sitting at the feet of uh, strong leaders, not only my daddy, who's a, a minister, but um, the Baptist church in the city of Detroit specifically, home yeah. to um, Reverend Franklin, which mm-hmm. is Aretha Franklin's daddy, mm-hmm. um, home of Reverend Charles Adams. I'm talking about great, great men, Reverend Ralph Sampson. I mean, I can go on and on. But it was it was in the church where um, I found my voice and whether that voice be um, in the choir, mm-hmm. whether that voice being um, on youth day, um, welcoming the guests of the church. You know, my mom and daddy always told me Davida always be prepared with three things, a scripture, a song and a sermon, because in okay. the Baptist church, you don't ever know when you might walk into church pretty and you on program so you have to always (laughs) i mean you i mean my mother be like oh yeah sister so-and-so put you on church you have to sing a solo excuse me okay you you have to you have to you're just finding it out that morning yeah you have to be ready as the young people say we stay ready so we don't have to get ready i'm curious you mentioned uh confidence and finding your confidence it sounds to me like through your both your family and the church that you were really being seen and heard Mm. Mm. even as a youngster. Is that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And pretty, you know what? I also, you know, I credit that to being born and raised Mm -hmm. in a very empowering black space. Mm -hmm. I've never had to shrink who I am to try to feel like I had to fit in. I've always felt loved um, mm-hmm. and accepted, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that that has a lot to do with finding that confidence, Pretty, because mm-hmm. I've got to tell you, I, I don't know, Pretty. listen, I was born in 69, you were born in 76. It's like, I don't know if our bodies are meant to absorb and take in all of this information that our young people are being forced to take in. Pretty, yeah. There was no me measuring my beauty mm-hmm. um, through a white gaze. There was no me measuring my beauty to white beauty standards. Like, what are we talking about? Like, I was around black women and black people. Mm-hmm. I'm just kind of like, my mom is black, my aunts, my neighbors, they're black. I'm, yeah. They're beautiful. I'm black. I'm beautiful. They tell me I'm black. Like, there was none of that. Like, it was just kind of like, if, and if hindsight is twenty twenty, if hindsight is twenty twenty. I should not just um, just casually say that there was none of that. Okay. 
were there white Barbie dolls? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, right? Um, I cannot excuse the fact that for years um, there were there was a test um, that we call the doll test, mm -hmm. and there were black children in this doll test that preferred white Barbie dolls yeah. over black Barbie dolls because they thought the white Barbie dolls were prettier. Yeah, well, pretty. Can I tell you? I've, I've never. I have. I don't know. I, I have to credit my mother and father. I mean, I have to. I was encouraged. Mm -hmm. I was pushed. I was challenged. And I don't know if it's because I'm the. I was the oldest. Yeah. Like, I'm the eldest. My mother and father's eldest child. I, I have a younger brother. I don't know if this is uh, this expectation of being the oldest child. I'm a first generation Detroiter. Mm -hmm. That means I was the first person in my family that was born in the North. And um, I was not born under um, the state sanctioned violence of Jim Crow. So right. it was like my parents like understood that this was the first generation that actually had the opportunity to be born into a country and to be able to exercise their full rights of a U.S. citizen, something that they did not have. And damn it, they weren't going to let me waste it. And they impressed upon me the importance of that and what that meant. And so I, I don't know. I guess it was my father tells me like this. Me and your mother made a lot of sacrifices yeah. to move from rural Alabama to Detroit. We want to return on our investment. You are the return on our investment. And we expect that. We expect black excellence and we won't settle for anything less. They got it. <laughs> it sounds to me like like uh, there was a lot of expectation, which can be overwhelming, but it sounds like it were, you were also really supported in a way where it didn't feel like all the pressure was on you and you were just in this pressure cooker of a childhood. Yeah. I mean, there were, there were expectations, but with the expectation, there was support because I also, you know, grew up where particularly my mom wanted to see her daughter do some of the things that um, she never really got the opportunity to do. And one of the big things that my mother always wanted the opportunity to do is to take piano lessons. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she wanted a daughter that played piano specifically for the church free tea. I had no, no, interest in playing <laughs> piano and so my mother baby bought uh -oh. this piano and so you talk about the sounds of my childhood <laughs> and so my mom was going to school at night and working during the day and one day she came home from school mm -hmm. um and I was up in my room probably listening to a new edition album because you know I love me some Ralph and Ronnie and Ricky and Bobby and Mike um, we, we share that mother, in common for sure. Yes. Okay. I was probably, <laughs> New edition. Listen, yes. And so um, she probably came into my room and asked me if I did, if I practiced piano. And I was like, no. And then mm -hmm. she said to my daddy, she's like, why hasn't Davia practiced piano? Why didn't you make her? And he was like, because she said she didn't want to do it. My mother's like, okay, that's it. We're done. We're done with this. But yeah, it was, there was a support, but there was also the ability to have some type of autonomy mm -hmm. um over the decisions that i've made and mm -hmm. the respect like if you didn't want to do it then okay fine so when does food come in where's the uh sort of interest in hospitality and yeah food and restaurants yeah so to new york or yeah that's exactly that's exactly what happened i mean mm -hmm. i think you know um, not not all of us, but I think many of us in the industry um, probably share the experience um, of working at a fast food restaurant. 
And so my first exposure to the industry of food, right? Mm -hmm. I've always been around food, grown food, grew up in a community that knew how to harvest food. But in the first time I was exposed to food as an industry um, Mm -hmm. was when I had my very first job um, working at a fast food restaurant. And that fast food restaurant was called Hardee's. Um, and the reason why I worked there is because my senior year in high school, Uh um, there was a lot of expenses, Preeti. I was, you know, extra. And so, (laughs) you know, I mean, I just was. You needed things. And so. You needed things. I I mean, I needed all the things. Right. Because, you know, you know, I had, you know, my school in which I was graduating from and my prom and then. I was a debutante, so I was coming out um, um, that year. And I needed three dresses for all those occasions. So anyway, I got me a little job at a fast food Uh restaurant. That was my first exposure um, to working so I could have a little extra money. And as soon as I raised enough money or saved enough money, I should say, to buy those dresses, Mm -hmm. I could not wait to get out of there. I was just kind of like, "Uh uh-uh, this this is not it. It's like, no. I'm just curious what were like a couple things that were just like, I hate this and I'm out of here. Yeah, you know what? Nobody had like has ever asked me this question, but here's the thing. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've told a lot of people this story either. Mm-hmm. Oh, Preeti, you're really good at this, right? <laughs> because you've allowed me to like like connect the dots. And mm-hmm. that is, is that we laid down the context of the environment that in which I was raised in, right? This yeah. exposure to fresh food, this exposure to people who took great care um, and concern about their food, a mother who ensured that we always had good, healthy, culturally appropriate food from the African-American um, cuisine, like on the table, right? Mm-hmm. So you're talking about a girl who has been exposed to that all her life. Yeah. And going into a fast food environment, and you'd be like, "What is this? Like, oh my god! Like, y'all are really making this biscuit and gravy by opening up a can? I didn't even know gravy came in a can." <laughs> Listen, I got to be very careful about what I say because, like, I don't want people to come for me and be like, "Um, oh, and talking about fast food." But listen. Some of yeah. that food that you all are eating at fast food restaurants, um, it's really suspect on if mm-hmm. it's food at all. And I don't want to shame people because I know the environment that we are living in today. Yeah. And then, of course, I was just like, listen, this was my first <laughs> this was my first exposure to an industry where I work and mm-hmm. I got paid. So, Preeti, again, you're talking to a girl who had been told that she is worthy. Mm-hmm. She is valuable. She has agency over her body. She's black. She's beautiful. She's excellent. And then you get this paycheck and you're like, <laughs> wait a minute. Am I really valuable? Like, what the fuck? What was, like, what was the hourly rate then? I want to say it was probably what? three three fifty. 350 so I think, again, I mean, if you really talk about it, right, mm-hmm. I think it's the conversation that we even having today in 2021, yeah. which is low quality food, right? And then this underappreciation for the labor. And that's, I think, and I didn't have the language for that. Mm-hmm. Like back in the 1980s when I was working there, it is exactly the same thing that we're dealing with today, right? And so I, I think that's one of the reasons why I'm like, I can't, I can't do this. In this next segment, I talk more with Davida about moving to New York City, starting to work in food, and eventually making her way back home to Detroit to start her nonprofit, Food Lab Detroit.
in New York is when I really started to, and again, this is like, you know, I graduated from Michigan State University and, and went off to New York um, to go study at NYU. So there's uh-huh. like, you know, I'm in graduate school, like I'm learning, I'm reading, I'm being exposed to all different types of cultures that I've never been exposed to before. I mean, shame on me. I mean, here it is. I graduated from undergrad. And even though there's a great culinary school here in the Detroit metropolitan area out in mm-hmm. Livonia that's called Schoolcraft College, like I never knew about like culinary school. Like that wasn't like like my, the path I was on. And what was your major in uh, graduate school? What were you? What was your focus when you were talking about learning about all these cultures and stuff? Stern School of Business, um, yeah, and got a um, psychology degree uh, from Michigan State University. And so in New York, it's like level of exposure is mm-hmm. is now like at a like on a scale from one to ten is like a fifteen. Right. Like I'm like, <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, and and again, that also speaks to the city that I was I was raised in. Um, a, a city that was again being almost insulated mm-hmm. in, a, in a in a predominantly black community. Like it was great for my childhood for the mm-hmm. comfort and the community and the affirmation, but wasn't exposed to a lot of different cultures um, growing up in the city of Detroit. Not that they weren't there, but Detroit is highly segregated. Yeah, and so but I didn't have access to it um, right. because. I didn't have a car to be able to drive to those places, but New York, because it's so dense Mm -hmm. and you can literally like eat your way around the world by taking the seven subway line in Queens, Uh going from Flushing all the way to Manhattan, Mm -hmm. like the whole world is on that line. And so that's where I really started um, to get exposed um, not only to cuisines from around the world, but also culinary school. And I was like, Oh, like, mm, this is really interesting. I didn't even know that there was a such thing as called culinary school. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And so at, it, in New York, it was called, I started taking cooking classes mm-hmm. um, at a place called ICE, the Institute for Culinary Education. Yeah, I've heard of it. And, pre- and, and so, and, and I had the audacity. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I had the audacity to go back home to tell my parents that I wanted to go to culinary school full time and become a chef. My mother and father were like, are you crazy? Absolutely not. We are not paying for a childhood. You have to understand, like, the the profession of being a chef now, yeah. in these quote-unquote celebrity chefs, pretty, mm-hmm. and, like, media dedicated to chefs, like, that shit did not exist. No, it didn't. Um, you know, no. pre, oh, my God, Food Network, Jesus right, Christ. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I totally understand, and and I'm with you on that time period of like the '90s and early, even early 2000s, where it was still just kind of this burgeoning thing of chefs being celebrities. Okay, but here's the thing, and mm-hmm. I love the word that you use, the word chefs being celebrities, and mm-hmm. not people who cook food being caricatures. Right. And that, and there's a difference because when Food Network first started, mm-hmm. I mean, we started with Sarah Moulton. Like, let's just be like, like she was real deal. Like, right. it, like we had like, listen, I don't want to get into it, but there were chefs <laughs> on the Food Network. I mean, I watched it yeah. absolutely. I loved. I, I mean, I love the early days um, of of Food Network. Um, I thought it was amazing. Mm-hmm. But even even then, I don't remember seeing any any black women. No, even in the early days um, of of Food Network. So, you know, to, to make a long story short, I think that's where my interest in food mm-hmm. from uh, again a very different industry. Now we're talking about the restaurant culture. Right now we're talking about you know um, fine dining culture. That's when that kind of I began to get exposed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But here is uh, my 
personal intersection um, with food. And so I only worked for two companies my entire time. I was in New York, again, for almost 20 years. The Mm -hmm. first company I worked for was Ralph Lauren. Mm -hmm. I worked in the Ralph Lauren Fragrances Division of Mm -hmm. of L'Oreal. And then the second company I worked for was Hearst Publications. Okay. Here's some of the deals that I did. Oh my gosh, I can't even believe I'm telling you this on the podcast. But you can thank our department for good housekeeping, salad dressing, country living. <laughs> oh, yes. Pretty, like really? So here I am in Manhattan striking deals with Big Ag and my friends are like in Brooklyn, like doing like this whole kind of artisanal movement that's happening um, in BK. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I mean, it was a great time, right? It, it really wasn't. A lot of it was like done informally until, of course, you know, New Yorkers got a hold to it and just kind of like right. totally leaned into it and monetized the shit out of everything. Fast forward. Mm-hmm. And um, the internet is exploding. The internet is really exploding. And we get to a point where, and folks, you know, might not believe it, but there was a time um, in this country where, um, the content from magazines were not online. And Hearst, along with all the other large publishing companies um, in New York, were starting to make huge investments in their digital business. And they were starting right. to move their content mm-hmm. um, onto an online um, portal and design their um, websites, right? And as a result of that came the introduction of digital media and what that looked like. And it was explosive. Yeah. And so the folks in my department um, got a buyout. Um, They brought us in and offered us a buyout. Um, I took it. And with the money from the buyout, I was able to open up a small little local store as an homage to my family. Because for whatever whatever reason, not only was like this kind of made in Brooklyn movement, super, super, super white, Mm -hmm. uh, super, super transplant um, from all over the place was coming in. For some reason, Pretty Late thought that, you know, the artisanal jam, like they created something special like my people like it's just kind of like i know y'all didn't think that you all invented pear preserve like i I know you're not you're not and so i created a um a small store um as an homage um, to my ancestors Um, it was called the southern pantry um and it was um a way to really uh, market and sell the limited Mm -hmm. edition product items that were made in brooklyn Mm. but also um as a way to tell the story that this handcrafted kind of handmade doing things in small batches is very much so a Southern aesthetic um, that mm-hmm. I was born and raised around. Then in 2000, in, I think it was 2012, mm-hmm. some folks call it um, a superstorm. Some folks call it a hurricane, but it was the second largest, most destructive, most expensive superstorm to hit the United States of America um, behind Katrina. Mm-hmm. It was called um, Superstorm Sandy. Mm-hmm. At the time, I was um, married and had bought a house out on Long Island. And so the um, community that I lived in um, was called South Freeport. It was 13 blocks um, that were infield. So it was pretty much um, thir- a 13 stretch that was pretty much man-made, right? Yeah. Um, and it was surrounded by water. A year before Sandy hit, there was another storm. It was called Irene. Mm-hmm. And so we were told, oh, my God, Irene is coming. You guys got to board, board up. Um, this is going to be it. This is going to be a big one. It's coming our way. 
evacuate, evacuate. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God, here we go. Right. Um, my mother was born and raised um, in Selma, Alabama, but her family moved to Mobile, Alabama, which is right off the Gulf Coast of Mexico. Right. Yeah. So I know about boarding up a house. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, OK, we got to board this house up. We got to make sure we got to evacuate. We got to. And I did everything they said that we were supposed to do for Irene. Mm hmm. Preaky, if we saw an inch of damn water, <laughs> you saw an inch. There was no water. There was no water. There was no hurricane. There was no superstorm. Maybe some some leaves fell off a tree. Maybe. So you can imagine mm-hmm. when they were like, "Okay, this, this here's Sandy. Sandy. Yeah. San, San, Sandy's gonna be the big one." I'm like, you know what? I'm not dealing with Irene. I'm not dealing with Sandy. Like, uh, uh-uh. I'm not doing this. Like, I am. This is not happening. And so I'm like, nah, I'm not falling for this because I just did mm-hmm. the same thing last year and I'm, I'm just not doing it. But let me tell you, I was laying in the bed mm. and it was the water that woke me up. Wow. In the middle of the night, I'm awoken by water, I'm like soaking wet. I'm like, wait a minute. Oh what God. is happening here? Lights are off. Uh-huh. Right. The, the, the water is rising and the mattress is now wet because the water is under and the water has risen now yeah. to the bed level. So I wake up with this water and I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, it, I mean, water is like, and every, I mean, it is pitch black. There are mm. no lights. It is pitch black. And you just hear this wind. And I just thought to myself, oh my God, I feel like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. This wind is going to pick this house up right. and just blow me back to Detroit. Like it was just oh, opened God. up the curtains in the living room and all I saw was water. I just thought to myself, I'm in, we're in the middle of it right now. And water is coming through the house. It's just coming. It's just coming through. Oh my gosh. And so, you know, I just grabbed my cell phone um, that was sitting um, on the nightstand mm-hmm. and ran up to the attic. That was it. And I called my mother and father. And, um, and my mother and father was like, what are you doing in the house? Mm-hmm. I was just kind of like, I didn't evacuate. And I sat in that attic for about two days. Oh, my God. And I remember praying with my mom and daddy. I said, mom and daddy, if I make it out of here alive, I'm coming home. Mm. I had lived in New York for almost 20 years. Yeah. I said, I'm coming home. I lived someplace else outside of Detroit for 20 years, but still called Detroit home. Yeah. And so I knew then I was just kind of like, I'm, I'm, I'm going back to Detroit. And then, and then I, I did. I mean, after, you know, 48 hours or so, I, I left that house and, and went back. You know, thank God for and, and I think about that, right, within the, the context of, of today, uh, uh, Preeti, whether it is a, uh, a pandemic mm-hmm. that we have just gone through, um, mm-hmm. everyone across the world, or if, if it's fires that you all deal with in, in California, you know, Detroit has seen probably five or six days of rain. We're experiencing massive flooding. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, my heart and my prayers go out to those individuals down in Miami where we just saw a building literally collapse. And and I and I, and I say that in the context of someone yeah. who not only identifies as a first Detroit, a first generation Detroiter, mm-hmm. as someone who not only identifies as as a black woman, someone who not only identifies as the daughter of um, the great migration because my parents uh, made that migration, but I also identify as a climate refugee. I yeah. left a home that had been destroyed by Superstorm Sandy, and I went back to Detroit. Yeah. And pretty the only thing that saved me, that I'm that that I am fully aware of, that allowed me to rebound and get back on my feet, is because I had some place to go. Mm-hmm. I had a safety net within a family that said, "You don't have to worry about anything." 
but getting back just on your get feet. Here. How many just people? How how many? How many people have that? Not nearly enough. Exactly. Not nearly enough people. How many people? We just gone through a global pandemic. Who said, you know what? You're not. You lost your job. You're not working right now. Don't even worry about it. We got you. Yeah. We got you. But the beautiful thing about that, and I'm gonna just bring that full circle, right? You know, after you know being at home with with moving back to Detroit and feeling quite depressed. I mean, because he, pretty, I mean, you got to realize, you know, how we grew up, you know, I, yeah. not only did I grew up in the era of like, you know, new edition, like in the R and B battles between Prince and Michael Jackson. I'm also like a child of like hip hop. I mean, it's yeah. trash now. I don't even know what these children are listening to. I have no <laughs> idea. And the reason why I say that is because I mean, hip hop, it is early kind of early days was not only about like righteous and conscious mm -hmm. music, but it was also about capitalism as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was like Puffy and Mace yeah. was like, throw your rollies in the sky and wave them side to side. I mean, it was just kind of like, yeah. you know, jets and freaking yachts and shit. And so there was this kind of like, in me, like a lot of black excellence had to do with going to the right schools, getting the right job, you know, making the right income. So, I mean, you know, working almost 20 years in New York City yeah. and then losing everything, like massive depression, like went into massive depression, which is kind of like I worked for so long mm -hmm. and was at such a high just for it all to be lost. And so just but fell into a, a huge depression. And I was I never forget it. I was in our family room and I was like on the couch for about two or three days. I don't know, moping around the house. And my mother just came to me and she sat down next to me and she says, you know, David, I let you mope around this house and, and cry and, you know, be depressed and, you know, yeah. you know, get in your feelings, get angry sometimes yeah. you know, to the point in which you actually have questioned God. Mm. You go around saying, why me? Why me? Why mm. not you? Number one, you know, who do you think you are? But I'm going to tell you what. And only a mother of, of faith, only uh, a mother who, in, in my opinion, who has seen some things and gone through some things yeah. and know that the same God who guided her great, great grandmother, the same God who took care of her grandfather, the same God who took care of her will take care of me. Yeah. And she said to me that the Lord didn't send the waters to drown you the Lord sent the waters to move you. It's up to you now to find out why God put you in Detroit. He's got a plan for you. And by God, if she was not That's right. That's beautiful. Right? And yeah. so due to a lot of people who loved up on me and prayed for me and, 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 and embraced the daughter of Detroit um, as, I, as I came back home, um, I found my own yeah. um, in Detroit and I found the ability to give back to a city that had given me so much in my childhood. Um, but that never would have happened Preeti if it had not been for Hurricane Sandy, because even though there was a lot happening in Detroit, Detroit mm -hmm. was going through this, as, as some people call a revitalization. Right. There was this interest. So a lot of folks were moving back to Detroit, some people for the right reasons, some people for um, the wrong reasons. Um, but whatever the case may be, Detroit was having a moment. 
Yeah. That moment was codified as a revitalization. So people would ask me all the time when I was living in New York and they knew that I was a native Detroiter. They would say, oh, Davida, when are you moving back to Detroit to be a part of the revitalization movement that's happening in your hometown? And I would always say to them, why would I ever (laughs) leave New York City? It's the place that I've wanted to be since I was five years old. Yeah. Why would I leave? Right. But. Sometimes, Preeti, when you make a plan... When when you're moved. (laughs) That's right. Exactly. Thank you so much. That story is really... uh, I think I've heard a piece of it in the past, but it was nice to hear the whole Mm. context of it. You've said that uh, Food Lab, in a conversation that we've had, and maybe you said it in some other places, Food Lab was born... Food Lab is the nonprofit that you uh, founded, was born out of a crisis. It was. And I'm curious about that and also how you feel like this current crisis is shifting the food world now. Mm, mm, Yeah. So many lessons can be learned from the city of Detroit in terms of how we um, were able to respond and not respond Mm -hmm. uh, to a city that at one particular point in time was the fourth richest city um, in the world, or um, at least the country. Uh Uh, We are the city that put the world on on wheels. And we were the Silicon Valley of our day. All All of the automobile barons, the automobile industry, manufacturing was centered um, in the city of Detroit. And the ecosystem that supported the manufacturing automobile industry was around Detroit, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so in my lifetime, and I'm again, 51 years old, in my lifetime, Detroit went from a city where the population was almost 2 million people in a city that's 140 square miles um, to give your listeners some context of what 140 miles looks like, you mm-hmm. can put the city of San Francisco, the island of Manhattan, and the city of Boston inside of the footprint of Detroit proper and still have room left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you're talking about 140 square miles. You're talking almost 2 million people in my lifetime in less than 50 years. Detroit went from the fourth richest city in the world to the poorest, blackest city in the country, right? Yeah. Um, where our population hovers mm, a little bit under 700,000. So I'm probably going to mm-hmm. say it's at about 670, wow. 690, right? And the reason why I bring this up in, a, in of that 140 square miles, what they're saying is that probably about a third to a quarter of our land is sitting vacant. Wow. And so, you know, Food Lab was found in the middle of a intended crisis, intended right. crisis. And that is in 2008, we had something that was called the crash on Wall Street or the crash yeah. of the mortgage insurance industry. And people say yeah. when New York sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. Well, Detroit caught mm-hmm. pneumonia because mm-hmm. the city um, of Detroit was the birthplace of the black middle class. And with the mm-hmm. birthplace of the black middle class, was there was also an experiment around single family housing, right? At one particular point in time in this country, the majority of black wealth was in the city of Detroit because our wealth was in our homes. We Mm -hmm. bought 
homes. And so you can imagine with the mortgage and the insurance crash, the devaluation of our homes, therefore the devaluation of our wealth in the city of Detroit, particularly for black people, plummeted. And the reason why Mm. I mention that is that we are at the intersection of of an economic crisis where the federal government, all eyes are on Wall Street and bailing out big insurance, big mortgages, and of course, Wall Street. And then on the local end of it, Detroit, Michigan was about to undergo the largest filing of bankruptcy Uh for a major city in the history of the United States of America. Detroit, Michigan filed for bankruptcy, the largest municipal bankruptcy ever filed by a city in the United States of America. And what that told Detroiters was that the federal government was not going to save us and Uh our local government was not going to save us. And so we as a people of Detroit had to save Mm -hmm. ourselves. Yeah. Connect, connect the dots pretty between what Detroit went through the economic crises, the intended economic crises that Detroit went through, and today's pandemic, right? Uh-huh. This 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 connective yeah. tissue that we all we got. We as a people have got to come together and create and build the social safety net because if we don't, who will? And so the reason why I bring that up and the reason why I think that is so critical and, and, and important is because at that moment when uh, an organization like Food Lab Detroit was founded for entrepreneurs, Mm -hmm. by entrepreneurs to support the food industry, particularly because of the economic crisis that hit Detroit. And there were so many food entrepreneurs that were doing what they knew how to do, which was make food and sell food so they could put food on the table. A lot of this work was happening informally we had the audacity mm-hmm. to think about, okay, how do we support one another to do this work? And then might we be able to actually create an organization that allowed people not only the support, but allowed people to come out of the informal economy and actually now take that passion, take that skill mm-hmm. set, take that drive to actually be the foundation and the building blocks of actually starting a small food business. And then what would it look like if we had more small food businesses owned by Detroiters, like in our communities and neighborhoods? So might might we be able to work intersectionally? Thank you, Kimberly Crenshaw, for giving us that word, right? Might we be Mm -hmm. able to work intersectionally where we be able to do two things? Number one, begin to create a community-based economic and community development strategy that was focused primarily on food. So how do we create Mm -hmm. small food businesses in our communities owned by Detroiters, right? Bringing them out of the informal into the formal economy. And then might those food businesses actually locally source ingredients from Detroit farmers and gardens so that we give farmers a market? Because we have now over 1,900 farms and gardens. We are growing about 600,000 tons of fresh produce in the city of Detroit. That's amazing. And so how do we now give our farmers a market where they can now actually sell their produce that they're growing Mm -hmm. and might the restaurant industry or local markets owned by Detroiters be a market for our farmers. And what we are really thinking about, if folks aren't catching it now, is that how do we become a food sovereign city where the people in our city 
community-centered, actually control the food that's on our plates from the seed all the way to it hits your plate um, in a restaurant, right? And so yeah. we thought, is that possible? How do you begin to build that out, right? And then secondly, it's like, how do we also begin to impact the health of Detroiters? Because what we know is that Detroiters suffer from diet-related diseases. Like we hear, we heard all about these comorbidities during the pandemic. We know that black and brown mm -hmm. bodies were disproportionately affected by the pandemic. And it is because that these black and brown bodies were the most vulnerable as it related to comorbidities of their body. They were already suffering from or impacted by mm -hmm. chronic related diseases. So their bodies were even more vulnerable due to high blood yeah. pressure, hypertension, diabetes, lung cancer, obesity. And when they get hit by a pandemic, their bodies were even more vulnerable and didn't have the power right. and the strength to fight it all. So might we be able to build an economic model, but also begin to impact the health implications of Detroiters yeah. who are shopping out of fast food restaurants or corner stores, bodegas, gas stations, right? So it was a, it was a strategy from, a, uh, from this nonprofit organization called Food Lab Detroit, um, where the, I'm the executive director that really thought, can we tackle two things at once? And so I think to connect the, I think to connect the connected tissue was uh, between uh, what Detroit experienced in the creation of, of Food Lab Detroit in 2012 um, and what mm -hmm. we're going through today. And, and again, I, I hearken back to what the young people say that, you know, you have to stay ready. So you have to get ready is that there's yeah. something to be said um, about the fact that Detroit was building a, uh, a community based local infrastructure. Like we're talking about infrastructure mm -hmm. right now in the national kind of uh, national square. Um, there right. are conversations that are being had on both uh, sides of the political spectrum, both Democrats and Republicans. And of course, our president um, is talking about it. And so is uh, Pete Buttigieg, our secretary of, uh, of transportation, is talking about infrastructure. My God, Reed, like after four years, we're actually going to have an infrastructure week. We st finally talking about <laughs> it's really going to happen. Infrastructure is really going to happen. Right. <laughs> the conversation is really happening. But one of the things that I can appreciate about Detroit was that we were building a local food infrastructure. And the reason why I bring up how important that is, is that we've been building this and building this is that when the pandemic hit, we didn't have to get ready uh -huh. because we were already mm, ready. You were, we ready. were and, and, and ready in the sense that we were connected together. Right. We were because we were already in community with one another. We had build, been mm -hmm. building relationships with one another so that we were already connected. And so when the pandemic hit, it was now just a matter of activating, getting people on a phone call. Okay, 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 what's sitting out in the field? How do we move these, mm -hmm. how do we move this produce? As we saw right. that our, 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 our nationwide, global, corporate food system went to hell. Like they couldn't manage to get yeah. onions out of the damn fields, process, put on a truck and deliver because to be honest, the way that our food system is set up, you know this, like there are only yeah. two big supply chains. It's either you're, you're either going to grocery stores or you're going institutional or you're either going mm -hmm. to restaurants. Right. That's it. Right. And the fact of the matter is both of those systems went to shit. Um, and so right. we were seeing farmers, you saw this, dumping out dairy products, right? You were seeing yeah, yeah, there's food, mounds of potatoes. Mounds of potatoes. Mounds of potatoes. Mounds of, yeah. I mean, produce just going to rot. 
I mean, just it, mm-hmm. yeah, it, mm-hmm. it, it was it was too big. They couldn't move it. They couldn't move it in time. It wasn't yeah. agile enough. They couldn't yeah. pivot in time. They couldn't respond. And so we went into rapid response. Why? Because we were agile enough and we were connected mm-hmm. enough and we had the density where we could move. Some people refer to this as like mutual aid. And, and you saw it. Yeah. Like overnight, chefs turned their kitchens into community kitchens. But here's the thing, Preeti, and mm-hmm. you know this on both sides. People think opening up a restaurant is difficult, which it is. Try closing one. Try, <laughs> I know that try story. Try closing a restaurant and being <laughs> try closing try two. closing a restaurant and being told that you got 24 hours to close it. Being told tomorrow, right. and there's a global pandemic. A, global you cannot open tomorrow, right. and we don't know when you're going to be yeah. able to open. Excuse me. Yeah. What the hell am I going to do with all this food in the walk-in? What am I supposed to do with all this food, right? Yeah. And so not only were chefs able to quickly pivot to not only feed the most vulnerable in their community, you know, the first people they fed was they fed the staff. And so I know chefs that were creating big boxes of care packages to give to their staff to take home because they had other, the food would have gone to waste or chefs Mm -hmm. that collectively came together, took the food out of their pantries and actually took it into a community kitchen and start cooking up food for the unhoused, start cooking up Mm -hmm. food for the most. So it was just kind of like the way our community was able to respond on a local level was incredible. And so there's something to be said about holding on to this concept of not only mutual aid, not only solidarity, but the thing that I'm thinking about most pretty is that what are the mm-hmm. infrastructure, since we're having this conversation about infrastructure, but I'm thinking about it in more in a more of an expansive way. And that is like, what is the infrastructure that we need to keep our community safe? Like, how do we keep each other safe? One thing that struck me when you were, were saying that was how it really has been I, what I've seen in a lot of places, whether it's in Detroit or in Oakland um, and around, you know, first of all, that's one of the reasons why I started volunteering on that small farm last year. That's was right. Like, that's right. I, what can I do? That's, what can I do right. to make sure when the traditional systems fail, this acre and a half farm mm. is going to be pivotal in making sure people can still get food yes. because if, you know, a lot of people might not sh- shop at small local farms, but when there's no cauliflower at Safeway, what are they going to do? They're going to start looking for other places. Um, and, and I think that that's also true for the larger restaurant industry. Would you agree that sort of it's, it's the people that are used to the establishment taking care of them that were sort of at a loss for what to do when those systems failed, but people who are always used to those larger establishment never helping immediately already had the networks mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the the you know as our as our colleague Brandy Mack would say the mycelium mm-hmm. um those those connections were already there and so we were able to quickly tap into okay I know this person I know that person uh okay you need this you need that but it's the folks that are used to those larger systems mm-hmm. and establishment just taking care of everything for them mm-hmm. and and, and it's really about money. They have the money to buy all of those services so that they don't need to have a uh, rich community. That's right. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Um, so thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. I, I want to talk to you forever, but <laughs> I 
do need to move on to our last segment, and that's where I ask you some fun questions about yourself. Sure. Mostly food-related. What are your go-to hot dog toppings? What's Davida's hot dog? Mmm. Mmm. You know what I absolutely love? Um, um, and again, I was introduced to this um, in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, my go-to hot dog topping is kimchi. Oh, yes. I love it. I love a pickly, spicy mm-hmm. dog situation. All right, let's stay on the toppings. What about pizza? What's your favorite uh, pizza toppings? Let me tell you something. Listen, again, uh-huh. the influence of, of, of New York um and i like a slice like i don't listen yeah it's sauce classic. and cheese like classic i don't want mm-hmm. a whole bunch of stuff on my stuff no i mm-hmm. like it fold it just simple just simple baby um but no i take a little a little toppings I'll, I'll take a little crushed red pepper little garlic okay little garlic yeah yeah a little dried oregano a little dried even. oregano a little dried ore- but that's it i can't wait till i can have another new york slice what was your favorite first like wow memory of food where you had something that was different than what you sort of had at home or in your community where you tasted something where it was sort of this epiphany as a, as a young person? Hmm. You know what? I will say the first thing that jumps out, you know, we've gone through this. Um, so, you mm-hmm. know, about my parents' um, uh, migratory patterns, but yeah. There's an article um, uh, that I wrote for F- SFA, so the Foodway Alliance, and I talk about how my parents left Alabama the place, but they never lost Alabama the idea. And yeah. um, growing up as a young person, my mother and father always made sure that my brother and I um, stayed connected to our roots. So every year until I was probably, I don't know, 16, we went back to um, Bessemer, Alabama um, to stay with mm-hmm. my grandparents. And I have to tell you, Preezy, like the first wild experience, something that I had never experienced at home was my grandfathers and my uncles. They had a wild meat party. That means whatever they killed, they put on the grill. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, wow. And so that can mean rabbit, raccoon, uh-huh. deer, coon, uh-huh. goat. It did not matter. Whatever they killed, they put on the grill. And so, like, you know, growing up for the very first time and, like, putting, like, this meat in my mouth, like, coon, like, mm-hmm. raccoon. And granddaddy was like, mm, that's raccoon you eat. Goat. Like, what is, like, what is this? And so we, they would have, yeah. like, wild meat parties where they would just go hunting and bring all kinds of animals back. That was it. And it was, wow. it was, it was my, delicious. Like seriously, and my grandmother it and my sounds aunts, delicious. Like and my grandmother and my aunts would be I want doing that invite. Would be doing all of the sides, and it was just you know open uh-huh. pit, like in the backyard, yeah. And the men around, like you know, grilling up all this meat, and um, it was, it was, it was, yeah. Uh, mine was uh, shark and bake in Trinidad mm. when I was twelve. Mm. Have you had shark and bake? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I've never mm-hmm. had shark and before. It's and similarly, it's like they they catch the shark, right? It was right like a shack on the beach, yeah. and they deep they batter and deep fry the shark, and then they make this almost like biscuit like uh, bun. Yeah, it's, um, also fried, and it's just that fried shark in there with the fried bread, and then there's oh like the God, you know, whole so thing of slaws and hot sauces and toppings that you can put on. Oh. and I was twelve years old, and I was like, "What, what is this? Yeah, is this? What is this? What is this?" <laughs> 
know, pre. That's why I'm so uh, offended. I'm like, that's why I'm so offended. Like from this like farm to table movement doesn't include black mm-hmm. people or what do they call right. it? Like nose to tail. Like, are you serious? A pig never had a chance in a black household. Like we gutted that pig <laughs> from, as my great grandmother would say, the rooter to the tutor. Like it was just like uh-huh. the head of a uh-huh. pig, hog head cheese, pig feet, pig tongue, pig ears. Like, uh-huh. are you serious? And now you all want to have like these. What do you, farm to tail $500 dinners. Like, oh, okay. It's very fetishistic. Yes, very much so. Uh, yeah. What is a favorite dish that your mother or grandmother or just some elderly woman in your family that really sticks out to you that always m- makes for you? Yeah. Um, so I'm glad that you asked what, what the favorite dish is um, that someone made for me. Um, usually when that question is asked, somebody says, oh, Davida, what's your, what's your favorite dish? And I tell people, that actually my favorite dish is a dish that I will never be able to eat again. Um, and that mm-hmm. is because it was a dish that was prepared by my grandmother. Um, and mm-hmm. Preeti, my, my brother can attest to this. I don't know what it is I'm doing wrong. Um, but since I was 11 years old, I have tried to master my grandmother's um, homemade biscuits. Could never do it. Um, but my favorite dish actually is um, my grandmother's um, homemade biscuits with mm-hmm. butter um, that she used to churn. Mm. Big, thick, and I hope I'm not a, a offending folks who are um, vegan and vegetarian, but the big, thick kind of cured bacon mm. that's been smoked. And my, my grandparents uh, used to have a, a smokehouse um, where they used to smoke hogs. And probably my grandmother's uh, scrambled eggs. And then, of course, uh, she would put some molasses on the side. And we used to, no forks, no spoons, no knives, baby. It was all like, take the biscuits. So there's a saying, sop it up with like a biscuit. Like, Uh take the piece of the biscuit with your hands, put a little molasses on it just a touch of eggs. Now you're talking about the perfect bite, baby. Oh my God. Mm. And so I would definitely say breakfast um, at my grandmother's table. I want to ask you more and more questions, but I think we need to go. Davida, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you, Preeti, for thinking Bye. of Bye. A huge thank you to Davida. I'll link to her and Food Lab Detroit in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to season one of Loading Doc Talks. We'll be back soon with season two. If you loved our first season, please write a review and share it with a friend. You can follow along by subscribing on your favorite podcast app or by following me on Twitter or IG at Chef P Mystery. And a big shout out to our pod and music production team, the amazing Copper and Heat. Are you done? You want one more to wrap up the season? Come on, Peppercorn, give us one more.